Hello and welcome to the Memory Caps Podcast. This is just a quick PSA before our episode starts. Um, there were two interviews I did before NAIC this year uh, with Stefan Erickson and with Mike Fouché. Unfortunately, because of NAIC being such a long weekend and then me immediately going on a three-week trip to Europe right afterwards, I was not able to get the editing done for these episodes in time. I am now back from Europe, finishing them up. So if anything is mentioned in these episodes talking about the upcoming meta for NAIC, I apologize. It might not be very relevant anymore, but the vast majority of these episodes is just great conversations with great players about their histories and how much they love the game. So I hope you enjoy, and moving forward, expect some uh, great interviews um, going into this next season. Have a good one. Hello and welcome to the Memory Caps podcast, where we interview members of the Pokemon TCG community. My name is Rafal Gladys. Each week we'll be speaking with our guests about their background with Pokemon TCG, how they got involved with the game, and giving them an opportunity to share their love of the game. Today's guest is Stefan Eriksson. Stefan is a player from Denmark with almost two decades of Pokemon TCG experience. He has multiple regionals top finishes, nationals finishes, and has 11 worlds invites. He is also the host of the YouTube channel Stefan's Classroom, where he makes informative videos diving into the statistics and math behind the Pokemon TCG. Outside of Pokemon, Stefan is a professor of finance at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. How are you doing, Stefan? Hi, uh, hello, Rafal, uh, and thanks for having me. I'm doing really, really great. Yeah, you were just telling me that you finished the school year, so I'm sure you must be celebrating. Yeah, well, almost. We just have a few resets to round off, and then we start the so-called academic holiday where we're going to write our papers, basically. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, for any of our listeners who are just hearing your voice for the first time, is there anything I missed or you'd like to kind of highlight about yourself that I might not have noticed? Uh, I think you covered a really, really almost everything of it i've been uh, playing for definitely uh, almost two decades and the experience involves also i've been toing judging at uh, basically every level there is and uh, recently joined judging again after uh, after just focus on playing for quite some years but no i, I think otherwise yeah and uh, my whole family plays but i guess we get into that and one a little bit later <laughs> for sure for sure <laughs> So I'm just going to get us started with the question that I ask all of our guests at the beginning, which is, what is your favorite card of all time and why? I found this question so hard. Like <laughs> a lot of people, they have just a card imprinted on their mind. But I, my first, my very first set was uh, EX Emerald that just came out back then. And uh, I, I would say if I had to pick a card like from the first set, I was always a fan of Rare Candy. It's really, really a card I liked. It's just the whole mechanic of it. But I, I must say, over the years, as I played and as I tried all kinds of things, I've always been a fan of control decks. I always think they're really nice to play. They've been very rewarding to play because the gameplay is so different. And because of that, then a card that, that springs to mind is a card like Lusamine. I really dislike it. I know a lot of people are going to hate me for it, <laughs> but I think it's still a really, really good card. And um, nah, so like as you can already hear, it's pretty hard to point out one card uh, over the years i have so many favorite cards but depending on the situation i may give a different answer because there's just cards for each situation i would say but uh nah lusamine is definitely up there definitely i see so any card that might allow maybe like a permanent loop uh in the gameplay Lo love these kind of things but uh, yeah, even even back in the day i was uh, i played uh, the ex flygon from legend maker 
So that was e when EX was first around, right? So mm -hmm. uh, that would be EX with capital letters, I would have to say these days. And uh, that was an amazing card. Uh, wanting ever something like that back ever since. Could you tell us a little bit about that deck? Because I'm sure if any seniors are listening, they, they were not born when this set came out. So <laughs> No, no. This was, uh, this was a deck that was actually first invented by my, my, uh, well, uh, another Danish player named Stefan Fromm. Um, uh, it was uh, a deck that we played with a Flycon EX Ledgermaker. We played together with a Nita Queen Delta and Macargo with Smooth Over and with Holland's cast form and um, what we will call a Delta engine or Holland transceiver engine. What does all this mean? Like, I think a card people may know uh, because it's been reprinted was the Macargo with Smooth Over. So that one is, it's not in format yet and now, but it was not that long ago it was reprinted. And the card essentially said, okay, search your deck and put a, ca a card on top of your deck. That was all. And Nita Queen allowed you to search your deck for a Pokemon every turn. So we had something very similar to that uh, later. I believe even there was actually a Nita Queen that was reprinted with a similar ability, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Flygon itself, that was really the thing. When you evolved it, it had to, uh, yeah, so-called come into play power, right? So uh, Poke Power at the time, where when you played it, you could search a discount pile for up to two energy cards and attach to it. And this is where Holland's Cast Form, for instance, came in. So you would put up two boost energies, uh, triple accelerate for the newer players. That's most closest I get to it. And then you could attach a Holland's Cast Form because that could be an energy card as well and put back up one of these energies. And then you could boost for two turns in a row, hitting for a solid 100 damage, which was, to be fair, at that time, it was really a big deal. But there were so many cool things about this deck. And this was a deck that was uh, valid up till Worlds 2007. Uh, then the, the card rotated after that, after that Worlds. So that was around the time in the deck that when we played. And um, I think we can find a TG archive somewhere. Really fun deck. Yes, I was looking it up. I did see that uh, Stefan Fromm got second in that Worlds, and you got, was it top 16 with that with that deck? Indeed, I, we, I got 12 that year. I lost to Diego, um, who later, who in a, in a different year became world champion. I'm so bad with last names, but he's from Argentina. Always wears his, uh, always wears the same hat. Always. Yes, Casiraga. There we go. Everybody knows him. Great guy. Had a fantastic top 16 game. It was a uh, best of three 90 minutes back then for Top Cut. We went to time. Just saying how long the games were, <laughs> and uh, well, I still remember how I lost because that was. Uh, it still bites me today. Fair and square lost. It was just, you know, I got bad beat by nothing but statistics, I would say, at that point. But I had a situation where card there were five cards in deck. I could draw four. I needed one. Well, guess what that one was? So uh, one of those... Uh, it always is. It's always the bottom one, right? It always is. But comparing the list with Stefan from, we had two cards different. And I even think it got so far that I still... <laughs> it, it sounds really dependent. I still think it was the better twist I had. But it was the same deck, right? So the only <laughs> real difference was... Uh, he played double strength charm. I played one strength charm, one plus power. Because what does that allow you for? You could play both. Because strength power was a tool, so you couldn't double play it. And plus power was just released. So there were some advantages and disadvantages both cards. I played a split, also allowing you to go double. That was one card difference. The other one was he played double Vibrava that was grass type delta. I played one of the grass type and one of the psychic type. Also for typing advantage, but also because the other one could do confuse, confuse which ended up winning me one of my Worlds games, so I was very, very happy that I decided to play that card and go for Confusion. Hmm. Um, so th these were two cards off, so in terms of what the deck can do, it didn't make any difference. 
But it's just these very, very small decisions. I like that a lot. It's very interesting. And we'll definitely get into some of like the statistics decisions. We're already kind of <laughs> teasing a little bit uh, some of our discussion topics. Um, so um, before we start moving a little bit towards the present, could you tell us just how you got involved with the Pokemon TCG in the first place? Um, I'm starting to interview a few more European players, so it's always interesting to me to kind of hear how you know, how did Pokemon get to, to Denmark, you know, because obviously it was such a such a big deal in Japan, in, in the United States, um, in the 90s and the early 2000s. How did you get involved with Pokemon? Yeah, that was, uh, I would say by coincidence, by a friend of mine, uh, Lars Anderson, who was also playing that Worlds 2007, but I met him uh, by a, where did I meet Lars the first time? By football, actually, and then uh, he was not there in 04, over the summer. And everybody said, no, he's in, uh, he's in the U.S. in Anaheim playing Pokemon. I just laughed a bit, like, ha, he's playing Pokemon. Then uh, when he got back, I spoke with him, and I was like, this actually sounds quite a lot, a lot of fun. Like, it was a half a year later, maybe. And then um, in the spring of 05, now we just uh, met at his house, and he taught me how to play the game. Three weeks later, I played Nationals. Um, and, uh, and I finished top 16. That sounds very good and all. I got 12, I think, also there. Yeah, 12 is a position I often get, apparently. <laughs> but... Uh, what comes with it is that Danish nationals at that time was very small. We were like, what, uh, 30-something players, 33, 35 players perhaps? Because the, at that time, uh, Wizard had just uh, given up the license 04 and had almost crushed the game at that point. If 04 or maybe a little earlier, but Nintendo took the license where, you know, those who have the license today still. But the game almost died at that point in Denmark, but then there was a small community that kept it alive. And it was mostly thanks to Stefan Fromm and his dad, I believe. And of course, if I forget anybody, you're sorry for that, but there was a lot of people in the community that still also helped out and uh, know so that it was very small and it grew uh, it grew over the years, fortunately. I started a league in 07 together with Lars, actually, in local. And that league still exists today, now run by my mom, actually, because I moved abroad. And later, you know, well, one family member started playing the next one, then the next one, and then my parents and, you know, all this. And yeah, back then it was just, there was not that many players in Denmark actually but uh, luckily today we have a solid player base still and I also see that we often have uh, players performing very well on the international stage I'm very happy about that but I think that's yeah that that's what I can say about that in the shortest way for now gotcha no I appreciate that and and it's great to hear about the lead, the lead that your mom runs that's fantastic was your your family in general like involved um collectively with playing the Pokemon TCG in, in the beginning, I started playing. I'm the oldest of four brothers. And uh, then I played for a while, uh, the first year myself. Then my first brother started playing a bit in 07, I think. I was the only one who went to Worlds in 07 because I got an invite via top four European ranking list. I was fourth place. But then they really started the next season with the third brother and my youngest brother who's jesper i guess I've, a lot of people know who jesper is uh, a lot of people come up to me and say oh you must be jesper's brother uh, thanks i guess but uh he started to play like he wanted to play when he was five and then uh, i told him no you're too young to play but the day you turn six i'll teach you that was a mistake because at 5 a.m on that day he turned six i got woken up like with him jumping on my bed or just running in and like ah oh, i'm six now you can teach me how to play so you know Promise was a promise, right? So, can I wait a little bit after breakfast? No, it had to be like right now. Because, well, my mistake, I didn't specify when on the day, when he turned six, right? So, uh, we started to play, and uh, no, uh, Jesper got very good, <laughs> very good since then. Mm -hmm. And then we were all four playing, and my parents were like, 
what are you spending all your time on? What is all this stuff? And then at some point they they even start playing as well and they joined along and we all just traveled together to all the events, uh, me, uh, my four brothers and my parents, to a point where we even had a mobile home where the most, what it was used for was to travel to Pokemon events. That was uh, <laughs> what it was. Uh, a mobile home is also called an RV, yeah, an RV. Uh, for being uh, more American about it, I guess. And uh, no, that was really, really nice. And later they went into judging. Um, fun fact that a lot of people may not know, but both my parents judged top four the regionals before. That's... Uh, really? Yeah, but okay. I say that, they did that. That's true, a regional level event. But back then you must also understand there was a lot of regionals going around. And there were one-day events. But they were still considered like big events, like same tiers now, but it's just way more often, right? So mm-hmm. it was... I would say you could find small regionals. You could. But still, they still have the trophy this day today. And uh, I believe my dad also top eight nationals once. So that's also... Uh, oh, yeah, he likes to say that a lot because he placed higher than me at one nationals. <laughs> because we, we both lost top eight. But he had a better, you know, uh, tiebreaker going into the top cut. A better position. So he got uh, put one place higher than me. I still here for it today. That's very funny. It's a it's a fun thing I would say, and then uh, no, ever since then, now they judge, and uh, yeah, I start judging a little this season. Probably get into that more. Also judged back in the day, and we TO nationals for six years in a row, all of us. So my family also hosted nationals essentially. Uh, no, so many things going on, like really, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a Pokemon family when it comes to that. Now, when you're talking about like all these different events that you've been to, hosted, um, judged, etc., is there a particular event or a season that stands out to you as particularly memorable or your favorite? I still would say my my oh six oh seven season because that was the first time I ever chased anything. Uh, that was uh, the Elo ranking was in place that year, and that was not what made it memorable. Elo is not a good idea in general for Pokemon, I believe. People, people used to just like not attend tournaments essentially just to keep their rating like stable, yeah, and, right? Yeah, and you would you would have the infamous one O drop at nationals or something like that, um, like these kind of situations uh, because of Elo. But uh, back then it was Elo ranking that determined your invites. You could win nationals to go to worlds, or you could be top four in Europe in that year. I actually got fifth on the ranking in Europe, but because number one also won nationals. Thank you, Arco, by the way, if you ever hear this again. Thank you. Then it passed down to number five on the ranking list, which was me. But it was still the most memorable season because I remember saying in the beginning of the year, my parents were not playing, nobody playing. I was like, I'm going to play, uh, try to see if I can qualify for Worlds. And they're like, aha, good luck, have fun. Yeah, but I'm 17 at that moment, which means I get to bring a Guardian. Yeah, never mind. Uh, then I'll bring Grandma then. Okay, okay, whatever. Season comes around. I end up getting an invite. My dad comes to me, so he asked, when are we going? And I said, nah, screw you. I already wrote grandma on the list. So I brought my <laughs> grandma to Worlds, uh, to Hawaii that year. I gave her a paid trip to Hawaii with everything. That's also what really made that season memorable, the way it ended. Oh, that's great. It was uh, fantastic. He, she didn't even know she got the ticket. I got all the information from my grandpa. So he already knew, and I wanted to surprise her. And they sent paper tickets back then. And everything was last moment. So I got the, I got the ticket in hand three days before departure. That was how close call it became, because mm. they had to mail it. Uh, and then uh, I go over to her and I say, I got a surprise for her. And uh, 
she uh, says, oh, what is it? And then I throw the ticket on the table and she basically almost falls back over the chair, right? <laughs> uh, like, what the hell? Like, is a plane ticket? Where are we going? And I say, look at it, where are you going? And then she sees we're going to Hawaii. And she's like, she completely like, uh, panics because she's like, I can't pack whatever. Oh, I don't have time. And then my grandpa strolls in with a with an already packed suitcase, says it's already ready for you. And she's like, you knew? And he says, yeah, of course, because this also means vacation for me. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> that was that was absolutely so memorable to this day i will i it was such a good laugh and still something we talk about this day today Com- fantastic trip fantastic location it was absolutely great way of ending that season the season running up to it i got to play so many epic decks so many epic games i loved the format back then a lot of other formats i really like but that season really stands out to me still this day today and that was like whole on engine. That, that was the deck that you played that flag, the, the worlds that you played that flag on deck at. Exactly. Where we ran the good old Holland engine. I was, uh, oh, I, uh, I don't, I'm not the guy who really plays old formats, but when I see an 07 worlds format, then you're probably going to see me. Hmm. And then, then, I, then I'll pop up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess like talking about some of like these old, just old, the uh, parts of like the Pokemon, the play Pokemon system with like the ELO rating, the, the top four getting an invite, um, do you have any kind of, I guess, I don't know what kind of, I, I guess I don't know necessarily how to phrase the question, but do you have any like reflections on how the game has changed, uh, since you've started playing it? Any, any things that stand out to you and, uh, positives, yeah. negatives, uh, big differences that you see now? Yeah, that is, wow. Um, do you have a couple of hours? Is that, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, there's really a lot to change since then. And it's, uh, it's both for the good or for the, be- uh, for, for the worst. But mostly it's just for the better. Must say that. A lot of people, they like to complain about the current system. But what they have to know is that it used to be a lot worse, I think. Like, uh, we already touched upon ELO, and I really don't think that was a great idea. I think ELO is great tiebreaker. Say you're equal on points or something. Like ELO can still be used for a tiebreaker, but... We can go into all the details, but I think a lot of change has been very good. I'm personally okay with the whole uh, tournament structure as we have it right now in terms of like, I like the day two Swiss system and whatnot, but uh, back then national swings was just best of 130 minutes, right? It was not a thing that was called best of three, only in top cut. All these kind of things, like all these small things. I was uh, very happy when we introduced best of three for Swiss. I was very happy when... You got uh, more time to play top cuts because top cuts were just 50 minutes. It was only worlds. that was like this strange 90-minute thing. Um, there's so many things they changed. Like also, the, we used to have nationals. I, I do miss that a lot. But we also had the whole season that it was these battle road system, which was basically like league challenges. But they gave more points in that sense for ELO ranking. They were placed after nationals. There was, uh, I had mid-season rotation I experienced. I also experienced seasons with no rotation. We also had where a card was banned. and uh, But there's been so many things going on and with the structure. But overall, I think it's been for the better. They do move slowly with a lot of things. And I still think a lot can be improved. And I got a lot of suggestions for that. But I think that's a topic for another time, I would say. Mm-hmm. Of course. Now, you, you, you've mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier. You said that um judging has become kind of a bigger bigger part of how you spend your time with pokemon before our uh before i started recording you were saying that you're gonna attend your first event for points as a player um in the next couple days um how has judging been how did you get involved with it how has the experience uh, been for you 
So I, I've actually been a judge since 07. That was when I took my first professor test when I was 15. Uh, back then, you're going to be a professor from age 15. That was only changed later to 18, like it is today. And I did judge events back then. And I even, I've TO'd nationals before and judged nationals and whatnot. Um, I've even been staff at Worlds once before as a call-in. I was playing on, on the first day or something, and then... Uh, one fell in and we got called in and replaced. Uh, and now I got back into judging after some years. I haven't judged much in, since eight, 2018. And then I decided at the beginning of this season, because the whole chasing for points and time I could spend on it, the worrying about deck choice, all that stress, I was like, no, I'm just going to try and go see if I can really do something with judging this season. And then I decided to really go back into it and apply for my first event. I did not get in for my first event, which I applied for. So I ended up actually playing uh, regionals in Lille in France. So I did not get picked. But then I got picked for my first regionals in Poland, in Warsaw. Oh, Poland of all places, huh? No. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, a, it was really a good trip. It went really well. Um, I've, uh, and I, uh, I developed a lot and evolved a lot as a, as a judge over the season. And... Uh, uh, I went from just uh, standard floor judging on the first day, doing some side events on the next day, to then I tried to head judge side events. I got on stream. I have uh, it went really, really well. Uh, attended a lot of regionals. I was judged at the EYC also. And uh, late, the la latest event I had was Malmö regionals, where I was promoted to assistant head judge. That was super awesome experience. I got to really wear the red shirt. Uh, I have a lot of respect for that red shirt because that is a tough job. Um, I can tell you that after after trying it, and uh, I've been very fortunate and very uh, very lucky that I've been invited for Worlds. I'll be going to Japan also. I don't know if I count that as my twelfth World invite, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but eleven as a player, one as staff. Let's put it like that. Yes. Um, so this will be my first uh, staff uh, Worlds. Uh, I've been on staff, like I said once before, as so a call in. Uh, and then I also been a staff party a few times because my wife has been translator one year. That was a really a good husband bonus I got that year. I would say to go <laughs> to a staff party. Uh, my parents have staffed many times, and then you know, sneaking in was a thing at some years. So I did try to experience it, and I know a lot of the judges there. I've known them for years. Also played against the judges before they became judges. Uh, it's been. Uh, it's been a lot of fun over the years, and I'm very happy I'm back judging because, as I also opened with saying, there's no stress anymore. Going to an event is so laid back and so relaxed. Yes, you work a lot at the event. That's not it. But in my case, I played so much that I know the rules by heart, and I know how these mechanics, they work. There was a lot of procedure to learn, but once you learn that, I, I, I really feel like judging was really, really nice. And now when I got you know work to attend to, I got family life and everything, it's nice to, I don't have to spend so much time practicing, say, because if I was playing, I really wanted to aim for aim high. I really wanted to do well. And that requires a lot of practice, a lot of thinking about it. Being a judge is, is also requires some work, but it's in a completely different way. And it's very, very nice. It's been a very good experience. And I may, as I look right now, I may even consider just continue judging, at least for now. Hmm. But uh, I am playing a league challenge tomorrow. My first event since regionals here a little, and uh, the aim is to get points because then I will not end the season at zero CP. That's the plan. <laughs> yes. Is is Padea evolved legal or is it still Scarlet Violet? I uh, got a nice mail from the TO saying it was not legal, so I'll believe the TO. Nah, it's not legal. I know that much. It's uh, <laughs> not before a week or two, I believe it is. Um, I think next week is legal, and then we have uh, then we have uh, NAIC right after or something like that. 
Like, yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the set just came out a week ago. I feel like there's already been so many events and so much stuff with it that uh, God, it feels like the calendar's been completely packed. Like with all the re SPEs and regionals and whatnot, and uh, return of local events, which is fantastic. But no, no Paldea tomorrow. So let's see what I'm gonna play. Um, I wish I could play Control. I could, but you know. I've been looking so much at Paldea Evolved, I'm kind of want to wait playing Control until that's legal. Mm -hmm. So I guess I have to find another deck. I, I suppose you will. <laughs> now, speaking of Control, that, that is very interesting you kind of mentioned that. Um, you know, you've said, you said earlier that you've had a lot of um, fun playing Control decks, Stall decks, and just like looking at your history, you know, li Limitless only goes so far back, but... You know, you have at least two pretty good finishes with uh, with Wobbuffet Hoopa, with the Umbreon stall that you played the same 60 as, mm, as Sander at EYC last year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about control decks that kind of stand out to you? And maybe, you know, n not asking you to necessarily reveal any secrets, but we are now heading into a, into a brand new meta with a lot of new interesting cards. How do you go about kind of looking at where a meta is going, looking at the new set that's coming out and figuring out how can control be built for this meta. Sometimes, you know, sometimes control is stronger than other formats. You know, control can't always necessarily be like a tier one deck, but um, how do you go about looking at a set that just came out, assessing the meta and seeing how you can build a deck to counter it? Yeah, it's control is a, like I mentioned a little before, but now we can really go into detail with it at least more. That control is a completely different way of thinking and playing. Um, it's uh, you have very good players, but uh, that are very good to say regular decks. But uh, I, I would love to see them play control because I don't think they're gonna do awesome with it. It's a completely different mindset you have to go in with when you play the game. But when it comes to constructing control decks, this is where I find it really fun. Also, uh, it sounds really weird to say control and fun in the same sentence and everything like that because a lot of people they tend to be really pissed about it or just annoyed. That's, that's the thing about control. There's so many things that actually makes it interesting to play. So let me start from the top. First, when you go into an event, control really rewards you for being, you know, predicting the meta very, very well. Because typically control is, ma you make it or break it with one or two cards uh, that other people are playing, not playing. Like a good example was, uh, you mentioned Umbreon. There was, a, say, a very key card that you were hoping your opponent did not play, otherwise you just scooped right there. And that was Tool Scrapper. So you're hoping, do not hit Tool Scrapper. Because we were kind of counting on, this is the way the counts are, this is the way everything is. Uh, Sander Wojciech came with the idea of this deck, and we've been uh, working on it and practicing a lot with it, and really trying to work through it. And uh, same with the Wobble of the Hoopa there, we really worked together on the deck. It was a really great experience. But common for all these decks was, every time a control deck does very well, it's because the meta has to be read exactly right. Like you said, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Like, uh, more recently, you had the V Union version of the deck uh, with Mewtwo V Union. I played that at Worlds last year also. But there it was kind of like, I would say, almost too late because it already kind of, the cat was already out of the bag at NAIC. Because nobody knew what was going on. They had no counters for the deck, really. And Sander made it all the way into top four, I believe, where he lost to Azul. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. And it was incredibly close as well. Azul had, I think he was playing Shauna to counter like Blissey and it happened yeah. to work against control because you wouldn't deck out. It, exactly. And it actually turned out to be very, very relevant there in this matchup here against Mewtwo V Union, right? Yeah. Because Sander played that and we can all go back and watch the stream game because you had the very fun situation with the flying Pikachu also, right? Um, but 
the point with all these decks uh, was like it was very depends on how to read the meta but i honestly think when you look over the years and you look at what was the actual strongest control deck i still think it was pitchy auto control because that was the hardest one to really you know really really counter and just you know be sure to win against uh, that was the pitchy auto or anguro kind of stuff I really think that was a brilliant control deck. You also had like a Heatmore deck that Sander ran one year. We can also go back and look at Waylord Stall. Epic times. Had a lot of fun with it. You also had Sylvia and I played that for a little while. Like it was mentioned that yes, I had some very good finishes with some controls. So I tend to switch a little back and forth. But I, uh, one year I got my invite purely by playing control. I played Sylvia for a lot of the points. I played um, uh, the Pichiotto control for a lot of points. I even played a Steelix control deck as well, also, uh, just, you know, and uh, Regigigas Hoopa as well. Like, all these kind of things, like, uh, control is not just control. A lot of people, they tend to put uh, middling in it, uh, uh, stall in it, and it's all small differences, but it all comes down to, like, it's very different deck building, very different style of playing, and it really rewards you for reading the meta exactly right. Not just what deck are people playing. Of course, you always have to read the meta right. But more all down to how many counts do they have of this card? Do they play this specific check? How likely is it that they do this? And the good thing always, it is so few people who actually practice against control. So when you play against them, they I have so many opponents go like, I know this deck existed, but I never practiced against it. So I'm actually not sure what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And after games, you win because your opponents know no idea what's going on. Like, uh, that, that happened uh, so often in the past. And, um, no, um, a lot of credit goes to Sander here. Absolutely brilliant mind working on control. It's been absolutely a, a privilege to work together with him and uh, spar with him and uh, go back and forth on different things with, uh, with different uh, control decks. Um, but I, I really like playing it. But, uh, yeah, um, you have to spend a lot of time on really finding something that works because you could look at the meta right now uh there are control decks but are they really good at the moment no i don't think so but paldea evolves really come with some interesting mechanics and say wouldn't say gimmicks but the introduction of you also have to think about look at the iono that card is really really good no doubt about it people are going to play that in large numbers but as a control player when i look at that and i see i want to build control I, I, what i see here is a card that remains great for me the entire game. How so? Well, as a control player, I rarely draw prizes. Often I win not by drawing prizes, often. You can draw prizes, it's a thing, but sometimes not. But it also means that you always draw six cards on it. Where your opponent, every time they play Ono later and later in the game, it gets worse for themselves. Because they get less and less cards. It's these kind of thoughts you have to you know, put, in, you know, put into your, uh, say, deck building. When you want to play control like these are the some of the things i think about when i see new cards also and you could also get a whole discussion is the new uh, card a uh, new supporter giacomo it's called i believe the supporter guy that this card's one special for each of your opponent's pokemon mm -hmm. is that really a good choice or still better to play flannery or should i play something else also because flannery is still a single strike card which also has an advantage on its own but all these kind of thoughts you have to you know put in into you know uh, when you want to play control it's all these kind of small things that's put together that's also what i find so interesting about control yeah i think yeah, i have to stop here otherwise i can talk the whole day about this but i find it super interesting of course and i know we have nic coming up but i want you to 
spoil any <laughs> anything. No, I can I can I can honestly say to them, I'm not playing NAIC, nor am I judging NAIC because well, I'm taking uh, just a little break. Got some, you know, uh, work has to be caught up with. Family is uh, very important to me. Uh, so there's a lot of things, but uh, I know that uh, well, it's a, it's almost a guarantee at this point that Sunder is building on something. Do I know what? Nope. Did I ask? Nope. Because I'm not going to spill anything because uh, I'm as excited as the rest of you, but there will come some control. I can uh, almost pinky promise on that there will come something. Yes, I'm sure. He always catches something that, I mean, everyone everyone discounted the V-Unions completely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some other, you know, talented control players like yourself must have noticed that healing for 200 is pretty good. But I think 99% of players thought, oh, this is garbage, you know. So do you actually know about how the, the V-Union deck was made? Do you know uh, do you know the story about how the deck was actually, you know, found? Um, I, I know that Sander and Meese were, were working on it, I think, very close to NAIC, but I don't really know much beyond that. Yeah, so so what I know about, I got a message from David Rothoff, I believe was. This was a guy traveling with Mason, with, uh, with uh, Mace and uh, Sander as well. And Mace was in the airport, and then he thought about it in the airport, in uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, on the way there. And then he felt like, this is insane. And then they start building it. And I was uh, messaging back and forth also, just coming with suggestions for cards to the deck and, you know, uh, kind of just, you know, uh, uh, brainstorm what could be played in this here. And then we're like, oh, Meowth is a great card to cycle with Snorlax. And, oh, you need to play uh, loads of Peonia because this is, you know, get the stuff out really quickly. And and then, uh, but uh, Mace came with the idea, as far as I know. But uh, I think also Sander really helped perfecting this and, well, piloted it with absolute expertise. Uh, so, no, uh, it was a very fun story and very, like, cool how uh, they were intending to play something else in the airport. They're like, but this is pretty good. Let's do it. <laughs> Especially since, like, that feels like such a, like, a... That's such, like, an old-school story, you know? Just, like, two guys in an airport come up with a deck, like, the week before the tournament. That feels like that happened, like, 10 or 15 years ago, but doesn't really happen that often anymore. It happens less and less because the, 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 the meta is more and more open. Like, back when we started, you were really rewarded for a so-called SD, secret deck, right? Because you could hide it from multiple events. It wouldn't go global. Because what was back then? It was Pokegym. Before that, it was Pojo. That was pretty much it. We didn't have uh, Limitless, uh, Verbang to share all the lists. Uh, Twitter was not going wild uh, at that point at all. Like, it was not a thing. Uh, so today, it's like you play one event and everybody knows it halfway through the event what you're playing. They almost know all you're all 60. So it's just a completely different yeah, world we live in today. Yeah. Um, now... I know that we're probably getting close to, to the end of, of both of our time here, so I do want to touch on uh, <laughs> Stefan's classroom. Um, I know you said that you are a professor of finance. I, you know, I, I can I can obviously imagine the connection between finance, statistics, Pokemon. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to make video content and connect those subjects that you're so passionate about with teaching um, to the Pokemon TCG? I uh, how do I start this? Yeah, so the, when the pandemic struck, you know, and uh, me, like many other teachers around the world, we were forced to teach online, and that was uh, well, to, to put it bluntly, it was pretty sucky at the time. And but then we had this system from our university we could use to stream, and I realized really quickly this system ain't good. This is very bad. So I thought, what can I do otherwise? What do I do to be online very well? And then um, I looked at it and I asked myself, who's online a lot? Who plays and who streams? Uh, gamers. Okay, great. Uh, what does gamers use? And I decided to kind of copy that a bit. 
So I actually started Twitch streaming first and to as part of my teaching. So I stream my classes on Twitch and I still do that today once in a while. And then I decide also quickly, well, I can also re-upload all my streams and upload my lectures via YouTube because it's unlimited storage pretty much. And then I thought, well, I'm making videos anyway. And I teach statistics and I always wanted to dive into more statistics of Pokemon. So I tried to just make the first episode uh, uh, about where I really looked into distribution to calculate a lot of different basic statistics for Pokemon, draw this and start with basic uh, how many and whatnot. And I really just took it from there and I decided every time I come across a cool statistical concept and I have some time, I decide, oh, let's uh, look into uh, what's the probability of pricing certain cards. Uh, let's look at double elimination brackets. Uh, I even later picked up my old uh, undergraduate uh, thesis where I actually looked at a win rate model for Pokemon TCG. I also have a finance episode. I looked at how many packs do you have to open to complete a set? And I think the latest one I had was when or when not to just burn stuff with Palpat or... I really just liked all these intricate uh, statistics topics because I never, from what I know, nearly nobody dealt with it before because, well, let's face it, math. People are not really, you know, ooh, math, exciting, or statistics, <laughs> ooh, exciting. we got a few really good people in the community right now who are very statistical-minded like myself. Uh, shout out to all those uh, lovely fellas. It's really, really great. And And... I just really like making it. I also made some, you know, uh, rate full art supporters. Uh, I just did it because I liked it. Then I still have my channel today, and once in a while I upload something, and I uh, should actually get around to making another Pokemon video. I've got a few topics in mind. Um, but no, I just, uh, and I got my brother to help me edit the stuff, and uh, just uh, thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this very niche thing because everybody's making pack openings or tech profiles or all the same, all the same. Some people are different than others, and some are definitely better than others, but there's a lot of the same thing, and I'm like, oh, nobody did this before. So I got a lot of ideas from articles back on 60 cards, 6 prices. I had a really good old article from written by Jason Krasinski also on some topics there, and I decided to make this into video content. I really picked from there. And I, um, you know, just worked with this here, and I really try to also often combine Pokemon into my teaching, my statistics classes, I even teach an honors college class starting last year where it's called Combinatorics and Randomization in Card Games. And you can already smell where this course is about, but essentially it's about shuffling. Shuffling cards and randomizing and probability in Pokemon, for instance. The exam was Pokemon or Magic or Yu-Gi-Oh or whatnot. And I teach this stuff here. And I also was so fortunate to give professor seminar about shuffling here at Malmo. I am to also give one for the global seminar next month. I've been invited for that, which I'm super happy about. So um, I got to really use these things that I also do for my work, but also for Pokemon and nicely combine those two things. So uh, I also hope I can keep doing something like this in the future. I also got reconnected with an old player of my, I met many years ago, uh, Colin Moore. And we actually wrote an article together on the topic of Pokemon, but this is more in a psychology uh, nature. And we actually have currently our article under review. So it uh, it may or may not be there's going to come our actual Pokemon publication in academic literature, uh, based on the, which I'm also very excited about. Again, just combining my work as an academic uh, together with Pokemon. It's been absolutely a fantastic journey. And that's also how Stefan's Classroom came to be. It was just this way of uh, combining my work with Pokemon as well under the, under the fan of, under the umbrella of Stefan's Classroom. And then I think, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> no, I, I think that's incredibly interesting, and and I and I understand what you mean when like 
you know, when it comes to just kind of like finding your, your niche in terms of what content is not being created, um, how can I fill that gap? There's been times when I've been like, you know, uh, building a deck and if you Google, like, what are the odds of prizing a card in Pokemon? What <laughs> yeah. The first thing that comes up is a Pojo article from... I, I just have it up now. It's a Pojo article from 2005. So, you know, n no resource of that quality has been made in 20 years. So May or know, may not be a guy that was Jason Klesinski that wrote it. I'm actually not sure if you look it up. Uh, do you know uh, who the author is now? It says... Um, it's some guy called XactXX. So I have I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe if I knew people's usernames a little better, I could have known that. But no, uh, no, that and there's a few others. No, it truth is that there's not uh, much people who make on this topic. Uh, some people made on shuffling and stuff like that. But uh, I'm not gonna sit here and uh, bash some people. But a lot of them are not precise. Let me put it like that. Mm -hmm. But then I maybe I don't want to upset people here. <laughs> Again, a topic for another time, perhaps. Of course, people have very strong opinions about shuffling in particular. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that is very true. But I really try to take an academic standpoint and just show, hey, guys, this is what math dictates and this is what I, I believe we should do. Mm -hmm. But that's, again, just my opinion. A lot of people have their own opinion. But, um, yeah, like I said, it's um, let's not uh, dive too much into that one today. Oh, of course. Yeah, we're not going to be you know going after anybody here. <laughs> um, I, I guess <laughs> I, I, I do have one one question, though, in terms of like the um, how people use statistics when when deck building when thinking about how to play the game like do you do you yeah. see any maybe common misplays that players tend to do when they are not being conscious about like the statistical aspect of pokemon because i know you've made a video about hisui and heavy ball things like pal pad like th things such as like should i burn a pal pad to then like draw into the card that i need um yep, yep do you see any other like common misplays that players might be making when they are not as um aware of of the math going on um behind the game like when people have played for a while you get you get this intuition right and this typically this intuition that you know that kind of leads you in the right direction and gives you an idea for in a certain scenario should i play this or that right and uh often what i see players now as a judge i get to observe some games and sometimes i just stand there like what are you doing but again as a judge you should not say anything, you should not interfere, you should not, you know, stone face on, right? But the point here being what I mostly see is just even basic sequencing errors. And that seems like very banal to say, but the whole idea about finning is winning, a lot of people, they've heard it before, a lot of people, they say they get it, but when you look at them play, often they don't. Let's just play like blatantly like that. Um, like, should I... Like, what is the actual increase of me playing this card before this card to fit out certain aspects? And uh, is it, should I go in for this card now? And these kind of decisions on when to burn something, that was also why I played the, made the Palpad video, actually, because I actually saw that one in EYC. It was very interesting to see. So I indeed saw that situation. The player was literally sitting there like, am I going to play this Palpad? To, you know, uh, does it really increase my odds or not? Or should I just forego that extra card? And truth is, the real answer is it depends. The later you are in the game, the less you should not. Like, the later you are in the game, the more you should, say, not do it, actually. Because then the, the change is actually too big. But in general, the answer is yes, you should always shuffle one back. And of course, it should be obvious that shuffling two back is worse than one if your aim is to hit something that's not a supporter. But... These kind of like 
small things. And I find it so interesting to calculate. And again, with the Hisuian heavy ball, it's a really good example because that one is pretty static. Uh, just go to the end of the video, you have a very nice overview of what the probability is given how many basics you play. I All these things I find very interesting because I hear a lot of people go like, um, I, I, all, I never hit this or, or you know, something like, oh, wait, now I come up with the one everybody makes a mistake about. And that's what they call the gambler's fallacy. That is the whole idea is that I have just flipped 15 tails. I'm not going to flip anymore because I'm just going to keep flipping tails. Or even worse, they're going to say like, oh, I have, um, I have uh, three tails now. Pretty good chance the next one's going to be a hit. I've heard that so many times and <laughs> oh it is uh oh it's a headache every time i hear it sometimes i also know it's set with a grain of salt or just as a joke but i've seen people literally sit there deadly serious go like oh god i have three tails on this now i have one flip left now well i'm a better spot now to get a hit than the last one because i just flipped three tails jesus <laughs> Like I, ho I hope you can also see how far why this is wrong. I guess like yes, uh, yes, yes. Of course, <laughs> it is always fifty percent. You know, uh, it ain't. It doesn't change. Like yes, there's a thing called the law of large numbers that in a very you know scenario to tell you infinite. Yes, you will hit the fifty fifty and you will even out somewhat. I made a really fun video with Gyro Sean, his name was, uh, where we were playing a Magikarp flip deck on PGO to produce as many flips as possible. Uh, also to win the game, of course, against each other, but also to count it later and do analysis on it. Recommend people to watch that one because I think it's super fun. And it really shows that whole, like, you know, it will even out after a while. But when you have to, when you flip these individual coin flips, they're independent of one another. Just because you flip tails in the last one doesn't mean you're more likely to flip heads this time. Mm -hmm. Guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same when somebody rolls a die, they need a six. They roll a five and they say, ah, oh, so close. <laughs> same idea. <laughs> yeah, as a as a Mew player, I, I understand the frustration of having a lot of uh, chromatic tails, but I'm sure, and I, I think I think part of it is also like, it, it's so much easier to forget, to, to remember the bad games and not the good games, right? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. are you going to remember the game where you flipped four cram tails and the game just kept on going and you were so frustrated? Or will you remember the game where you flipped four heads, one in three turns, and you went to game two? Like, you're not going to remember that. You'll remember oh. the one where things, everything went wrong. Of course or not. Uh, there's only one good game I saw in those last season. That was epic. A guy, he went for, there was a, I don't remember the exact board state, but he could have done it safer. Let me put it like that. But he went for the following play instead. I'm going to cram my power tablet. So one, uh, he played Mew, and one play involved that he could play two or three power tablets for a win. Okay? Another play was cram away my power tablet, flip hits, search my deck for a Pokemon catcher, and then flip hits. <laughs> that was the play he went for, and what, what do you think? He pulled it off. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I was sitting like, you should never do this. There was yeah. a lot much better play on board that was like a lot safer. Yeah, that doesn't mean it would wouldn't have gone well every time, but he was like, it worked. What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> oh, epic stuff. Yeah. Love it. Love it. That's those interesting ones where you have to kind of um, you know, do some of the math where it's like, you know, if I 
if I just try to get those three power tablets, you know, my win percentage maybe goes up by like 5-10%. Um, if I get that catcher and flip heads, I win the game, but if I remove the power tablet and then the flip tails, I lose the game. You know, you have to kind of put some value on, am I, you know, yeah, the risk-reward factor of, of some of these decisions. You're absolutely right on that. And it, uh, I guess this comes from one teachers who are not, all right? Like, yes. I don't know what you're teaching, Rafael, but uh, this sounds very much like you're teaching this. this uh, exactly <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm a history teacher, but I appreciate, I appreciate the acknowledgement. Fair is fair, right? <laughs> um, now, unfortunately, we do have to begin uh, wrapping up. I really appreciated the conversation. This is this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, outside of you said, well, you said that you will be um, you know attending a challenge this weekend. Um, hopefully, uh, that goes well. Hope you find the deck mm -hmm. you're looking for. Maybe Mew now. Maybe Mew with catchers. <laughs> I think I think uh, so. I did. Uh, I have a uh, my brother is a uh, my brother is uh, coaching on Metafy. And I, I and he was like he made a promotion saying uh, you know first half an hour for free. Now nah, that's interesting. So why don't I just sign up myself? For that? <laughs> I, just uh, jokingly, right? But I just called him and said, "Hey, Jesper, what am I playing tomorrow?" And he told me something, so I'm gonna go with that. Okay. That I can okay. always blame him. It was a bad deck. Of but, course. But uh, it involves a lot of. Uh, are there coin flips deck now? I have to think a lot. Is there a lot of coin flips? Now nah, we don't like those things. But it. Uh, it's a good deck. I think okay. it looks really much fun. I will uh, <laughs> let you know. <laughs> All right. Best of luck. Um, is there Thank any um, events you're planning on being at in the future that people will see you at? Any any shout outs you'd like to um, give us before we finish up? I would say, well, World's Japan. Like a lot of other people here, I am so excited for this. I guess like most people out there, I'll be at staff. So you can always find me as one of the judges. Come and say hi. Always welcome. Happy to always uh, meet my uh, other Pokemon uh, buddies around the whole world. It's a fantastic community. It's the reason I've also been in the game for so long. The community is absolutely wonderful. And yeah, I plan to be at Worlds. Got a challenge tomorrow. I think that's that's how far my planning goes for now. I don't know anything about next season unless I have missed something on Twitter last while. And uh, I would very much like to give a shout out to... Well, I mentioned a lot of uh, nice names here and uh, just again... Thanks to everyone who's been along the way, and it's uh, been a fantastic ride so far. And uh, I really hope that uh, I get to have many, many more years in this great game. And uh, who knows? Who knows what will happen and what the future will hold. But I'm very thankful to all the people who've been there for me through all these years. And uh, yeah, I couldn't have made it without them. Thank you. Thank you again, Stefan, uh, for joining us. I really appreciate it, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been uh, really, really fun to get to also just talk about my experience with the game. Absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you to Stefan for being so generous with his time. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this one, please consider giving the podcast a follow, review, or rating, wherever you're listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at memcap podcast or if you want to see me post about my own tcg experiences you can follow me on twitter at rc gladys i hope you have a great day and thank you for listening